people will be shocked at how refined the product experiences are. Like you go to our dispensary downstairs from where I'm sitting right now. And if you, know, you want stuff that hits you normally, do you want fast acting? We have that in kind of within every variety. You know, eight different types of carts, you know, like that are, you know, not just by flavor, but hey, it's live resin, it's full spectrum. It's, you know, like there's a, you know, it's just pure HTE. There's just so much variety, so many experiences, so many cannabinoids, you know, CBD, CBG, you know, THCV, like it just, it is the Delta 8 stuff, the variety and the efficacy and then how refined those products are. So like someone threw a label on it, they're fully, you know, merchandised, et cetera, is uh, I think is, is shocking for people that have only experienced kind of what happens inside these, these dispensaries and the kind of, uh, for lack of a better term, like less developed markets. And, you know, just, it is, it's a full CPG. It's walking into a Whole Foods, you know, uh, and, and it's all taken super seriously. The product quality is all extremely high. And I think for people that haven't experienced that, and, and it's similar in Washington and, and Oregon and to a lesser extent, Arizona uh, and, and Nevada. But like, if you haven't experienced that, it's extremely eye-opening. And then people kind of walk in and be like, oh, I didn't realize it was like this. You know, like there's, there's legitimate brands, there's hundreds of options. There's all these things I haven't heard of before. It's, a, uh, it's pretty eye-opening. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me is Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Oren Shabel. I think I messed that up. President of Unrivaled Brands. Oren, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? What's going on? I'm doing great. Pleasure to be here. Excited to dive in. Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm excited to chat with another West Coaster with a, uh, and the West Coast brand, really. How are you, that, Brian? Yeah. That's fair. He is a West Coast brand, but he's got East Coast ties. And I think maybe that's where his heart may lie still. So I think for the record, it might be split. On, on where yeah, look, we're, we're doing this for a global listenership. You know, we're just you know, people of all races, shapes, sizes. Let's, you know, we're coming together. I love yes, it. Sir. So I guess for the record, we'll put him in the global category. And I love it, Orrin. We'll take it there. So Orrin, <laughs> for our listeners that want to learn more about you, they want to get, how did you get into this space and a little background about you? Got it. Uh, yeah. So I guess I, I have a history inside uh, regulated products. So I worked in, you know, initially I was at an agency in New York. We worked a lot with liquor companies. We worked with uh, Ciroc and Grey Goose, you know, Red Bull companies like that. Uh, after that, I was in the firearms industry, you know, so also heavily regulated, you know, a lot of restrictions on how you can advertise, how you can talk about your value proposition, that kind of thing, plus regulated to the customer as well. And then I was in the drone industry after that, uh, consumer drones, which had a a big hurdle to face in, in adoption because, you know, uh, people didn't like the word drone. It was associated with kind of, you know, remote death versus taking uh, cameras, which I think is now that battle has been won. And uh, people probably more commonly associate drones as what they see flying around in the park than what they do, uh, you know, seeing it as an act of war. And uh, and then now, yeah, and then in, into cannabis. And so uh, I, I got into this because a friend of mine, Colin Landforce, we'd, we'd worked together at, at two previous businesses. He worked with me um, at some companies before this. And I went to a, uh, a enterprise drone tech software company that, that got acquired when he was starting a company called called Letterman. I got to kind of watch his journey as we went through a, a pretty rapid journey at, at this other uh, this other company. And then after that, they were getting up to the size where it, it made sense for, for someone with my skill set to be a part of it as they were going through a big merger. And so then the last three years, I've just been working, working in the industry, uh, bringing together all the companies inside this kind of massive roll-up we've done uh, across dispensaries and brands and all kinds of things to become you know this big company we are today. And I appreciate you sharing that. I want to dive into some of those specifics about some of those challenges. But I guess before we dive into that, was there ever any hesitancy to kind of dive into cannabis? Obviously, you've worked in some of the challenging markets from a regulation standpoint, but any challenges or hesitations to kind of come into can- cannabis? No, I've always had like an alternative background, right? And so it's uh, I wasn't like worried about how that would look for professionally or to, for, to friends and family or anything like that. It's always actually been really 
exciting to me. If you had told 15 year old me that I'd be working in cannabis, I think, I think I'd be, I'd be shocked. Uh, just imagining it was legal, but no, I, I, I see the opportunity is so big and so exciting in so many ways and just so positive. Something you can really sink, you know, your teeth into and be emotional about that. I was, uh, I was ready to go. It's just a matter of, you know, uh, it, it was good that, I was going into a viable business because there's a lot of uh, these cannabis businesses that have been kind of fly by night. So yeah, as long as I knew the opportunity was was uh, was real, I was ready to roll. So let's talk about Unrivaled Brands. Can you share a little bit about the company and what your role is there? Got it. Yeah, no problem. So Unrivaled Brands, we are the West Coast MSO. So MSO stands for Multi-State Operator, which is a kind of term in cannabis that separates people that operate in one market from people that operate in multiple. Uh, the reason it's important is because operating in multiple markets in cannabis is really, really hard. There's different regulation in every market. There's different product standards. There's different just, you know, overall quality. Consumers are different. It's not like, hey, I'm, I'm selling widgets, you know, in this state, in that state. It's really complex. But uh, what we're doing is we're bringing together a house of brands across retail and across, you know, actual consumer package goods uh, into the West Coast and the markets that we're in. And then we're looking to make a splash with those brands that we feel can impact the globe and help those be global brands as the cannabis industry grows. And so we've done that through a, a, a kind of a long and complex series of mergers and, uh, and acquisitions where we've brought now, you know, six or seven kind of total companies together into this kind of one functioning organization. And, uh, you know, we're going to kind of keep doing that, you know, headed into the future to kind of, you know, create this, this really interesting company we feel can represent brands and the modern cannabis customer experience to the world. Uh, so I'm the president of that company. So kind of all of the day-to-day operations across our retail stores, our distribution, our, our sales, our product strategy, uh, everything that kind of goes on day-to-day is uh, kind of falls in my purview. A lot of the, the public market stuff, uh, you know, getting through the M&A and, you know, kind of like the financial analysis, et cetera, kind of lives in, in the, the, the teams on our business that, that uh, service the public facing uh, side of the company. But yeah, all the internal operations I'm working through every day. I have a quick question. How was, how much has changed since that merger? Oh, I mean, in the last three years, uh, well, so I guess we've had a series of mergers. We had a big merger in July where we actually went onto the With public market. Effect. Yeah, exactly. And so yeah. the previous mergers, you know, like starting three years ago, it was a completely different market, you know. Um, but since the actual public merger, yeah, look, there's a lot more spotlight on exactly what you're working on. There's a a lot more challenges because you have to maintain a large a larger number of corporate infrastructure um, to actually support being a, a public company. And, you know, we went from, you know, in the traditional, I was at a the kind of traditional unrivaled that wasn't on the public side. And we had about 150 employees and going from that to where we're at now, which is like 370, it's just a massive jump. And I uh, look, naturally what we're focused on right now in this quarter is just bringing all these pieces together. What are our shared values as a group? You know, how are we making sure we've, you know, there's no redundancy across what we're doing. Do we have the right systems to function at this size? That's the kind of thing that, you know, in a different industry, you could spend a year doing, but here we're trying to kind of condense that into, into 90 days before we go, you know, and continue to expand further. That's got to be so challenging from like a macro standpoint and then kind of getting down to those specific details. So how, how do you go about doing that? Obviously, with your role, you've kind of got your hands all over the place. And like you've talked about in, in cannabis, especially as an MSO, the challenges aren't just, you know, one way, the whole way. It's different state, different rules. So how do you go about kind of staying on top of all those? Yeah. And so I think it, it's one of those things where you have to be really hands on. But I think the um, the top three things are going to be just understanding what's happening on the ground. You know, I spend a lot of time, I'm above one of our retail stores right now. I work above another one of our retail stores, uh, making sure that our kind of core teams are just actually like in the streets and talking to customers and talking to buyers and ensuring our hand is on the pulse. Because if we're making decisions like in a corporate vacuum, 
that's not going to work. Uh, so basically having our hands on the pulse is, is number one. Number two is, is communication into a company. You know, so we, it's just like, what are the meetings where people are actually sharing information back and forth and sharing the challenges back and forth. And a lot of what I end up doing comes into problem solving into a company where it's like, what is things that just can't get done or aren't getting done that should have been done like three weeks ago, you know, and, and why, and like, how do we, how do I jump in and make sure that that gets becomes prioritized and how do we set it up so that works well in the future? Um, and then the last piece is, is scenario planning because there's so many things happening in cannabis. Like, okay, what if federal legalization happens? What if federal legalization happens, but we can't be vertically integrated? What if, you know, the mark, the market pricing falls by 40%, which is can happen, you know, in, in a heartbeat in cannabis. How have we outlined at least a couple bullet points for each of these things? So we know what's going to happen or, or we know we have a, the start of a plan based on what's going to function. And so I think those three things, like again, you know, being in the trenches, communicating within the company, and then doing planning for multiple scenarios is, is how I kind of approach this on the daily. I love that you shared about the scenario planning. No one's kind of brought that to our attention. And for so many conversations, you always wonder, you know, is that a kind of constant consideration by these leaders of these companies? Because you're right, like with all the happenings that go on, you need to have these scenarios planned out because you can't be reactive. You have to be proactive. And I'm just assuming here in these whiteboard sessions, the variables underneath are probably constantly changing because the input that what's coming in is like, hey, maybe safe will pass tomorrow. Maybe maybe we'll get some more push for, for federal legalization. So how does that go down when you're when you're kind of scenario planning? Are you constantly tweaking those variables and, and moving that inputs? Yeah, well, if you obsess too much about it, then you get lost in, in continual planning. And so really, it's kind of at least how I look at it is trying to uh, how has the scenario changed monthly, basically, like going into this next month, what are the variables have changed? What more have we heard? Should we update any of these current ideas that we have? And then asking the question, okay, in, in the various departments, how does that impact what we do with them to either prepare for a future scenario or to act on kind of what we're seeing happening? But yeah, too much, you know, you can get an analysis paralysis, right? If you're constantly thinking about it. But a lot of this, I just learned from, uh, I'm a very like mathematically focused person. And when I was uh, more focused on sales in previous jobs, this is kind of how I would work through my sales process would be just like objection planning, essentially. Like, okay, if they say this, what do we counter with that? And, and preparing like the reps that work for me and stuff with that kind of thing. And, and now it's just a, uh, like a mental model that is just really useful in, in, in life. And then in particular, in a business that's as complicated as this. I have a question. How do you blend like the hard data from a mathematical perspective with the anecdotal kind of conversations you're having with consumers on the street? Yeah. Well, it's, perspective? It is interesting. Um, we, we weight them both pretty heavily because we find that the data can be a little bit behind, right? So a lot yeah. of what happens is do deals with fluctuation in price. And so we can say, hey, we are, uh, if we're hearing a fluctuation in price on the ground, that might not make it into like store data or sell through data for a month or two because the time it takes for things to yeah. go into production and things to catch up. So I, I think we rely a little more on what's happening anecdotally on the ground, especially when it comes to pricing or when it comes to regulation than we do on kind of what the data is saying. And the data is kind of more supporting of that. When we look at the data is more of, okay, like, what is the market doing overall? Like macro level analysis. Are these categories growing that we believe that we're a part of? Or is uh, is the market, is the California market dipping and we're going up? Or you know, how, how can we kind of validate our performance versus these baselines? Which one of those categories uh, gets you most excited? You know, there's a... Uh, there's a couple things, you know, I'm really personally excited about the drinks category. You see me post a lot about this on Twitter. I don't think that that's a short-term win whatsoever. Yes, you no. know, uh, I, yeah, I can basically tell you from, uh, you know, owning and operating multiple dispensaries right now is that uh, it just, just the room it takes to store units like that. And then the value per dollar of those units when like an extract that's this size has a hundred dollar value and a, and a drink that size has, you know, $6 value. It just isn't, especially when you're space constrained, it doesn't make sense. Yep. And, uh, but I do think that, you know, when we're outside of the dispensary infrastructure, 
and we're looking at, okay, am I going to be able to buy cannabis at Whole Foods or Erwan or, you know, whatever the equivalent is, in, you know, across, across the country, like the drinks are probably that Trojan horse, you know? And, uh, and so I think that's something interesting on a macro level in the future. But I think that the companies that are focused on that now aren't necessarily going to have any amount of leg up uh, to when that actually happens. Um, but, you know, other than that, it's, it's really still... Uh, I, I get excited because the California market's moving so fast. We see constant new products. And I just love new products and packaging and it just gets me excited. And so I look at all that, but really, you know, the business is still tactical. It's about like who has great flour, you know, who has, uh, who has consistent quality in the things that they are doing and, you know, and do people, you know, feel an affinity to your brand. And so the, the product end of it is, is almost kind of, while it's exciting to me personally, it doesn't matter as much tactically. Yeah, I was just going to say from a, an innovation standpoint, it's got to be challenging to kind of build a brand around, say, like a specific product when the product landscape is ever changing. So like, how do you grab on to maybe like a new trendy product and hope that it that trend lasts a year yeah. to implement it from a manufacturing perspective? And so we actually, we think and talk a lot about this. And, and part of it, and the Corova brand is actually really based around dealing with that. Uh, so Corova is our biggest brand. It's focused yeah. on high potency. And, uh, but the approach we take to it is we have staple SKUs. So we have our kind of our mini cookies, um, and we have our, uh, you know, we have our extracts, we have our flour that we always have, no matter what. And they're, they're big sellers for us. They're all six figure you know, presences in the category or more. And those are always kind of there. And we're working on how do we make those consistent? People always come in and shop for them. How do we do good with it? But then we're, we're rotating in all these other, uh, basically categories or products. We have a big lineup of things because we want to keep that excitement there too. Right. And, and if something does really well, like, you know, uh, for instance, our, our thousand milligram tinctures are doing well enough that it might at some point, no longer be, hey, this is kind of an exciting thing we're doing. And it might be one of those core products that we always have. But we're rotating in a ton of stuff. And you'll see it online. Like we did a hot sauce seasonally for the holidays, you know, like a thousand milligram hot sauce. We did a Delta 8,000 milligram cookie. And, you know, and they come, they go. Sometimes they're on the menu for a couple months. Sometimes they're on the menu for six months. Sometimes they're gone in a month and we don't bring them back for four months. We're kind of continually throwing those things at the wall because... It's an opportunity to have a conversation with uh, you know buyers and people at stores. It's an opportunity for consumers to get excited about the brand. And then if it's a trend, okay, guess what? We designed some packaging, we ordered some things, we sold it, we made money, and then we're able to cut it and be like, hey, that was seasonal, or you know, hey, this doesn't work. But also, if it has legs, we can transition it over to being a core part of the brand. And this isn't something I would ever recommend in like another industry because of the amount of work it takes to do R and D and do those. But in this industry, just keeping up with. Okay, do we think this is going to be a thing? Can we latch onto it? You know, can we can we do it well? Can it be unique? Can we have the Corova angle? Is a uh, is something that I feel like has helped keep our brand alive through a lot of ups and downs and changes inside the industry. I think that's so important because it gives a consumer just a continuous reason to come back and to see new products. And I, I want to kind of pick into some of those details. So when you're setting up, let's say the hot sauce, is there like an, a minimum a minimum amount the team is willing to invest? And then is there a metric to determine success to say, hey, it's worth doubling down on this over the next quarter? How, how do you guys define those metrics internally? Yeah, the hot sauce is actually a great example for that. So we're lucky to get to the point where when we make enough edibles and do enough things where the R&D component of this with our vendors is essentially like, they're happy to develop something for us because they know that we're going to order a certain quantity. Like for us, you know, we don't want to do less than 2,000 to 3,000 units of anything because inside of a cost model, if you're amortizing the cost of testing and R&D and things across a certain volume, like we want to be ensuring we have that for every single SKU. So if we have three flavors, or for instance, so they know, our partners know we're going to be doing two to 10,000 of any given thing, even if we don't keep it. And so for them, they're incentivized to help keep that R&D together. So we have a constant flow of things that we're throwing at the wall that don't even make it out. And the hot sauce is one where we're like, oh, this actually tastes good. And the costs actually works really well. 
okay, let's put out two flavors. You know, we, we did, uh, you know, a couple thousand units of each and it sold through faster than I think we thought, you know, at the first couple of weeks where people were like, do we want to do this? And then all of a sudden it was kind of bigger on social and then it was just gone. And so but then we look at that and, and we go, uh, all right, like, you know, we developed this with a partner. It didn't cost us a bunch of R and D. We, you know, we we made it with them. They made money on it. We made money on it. Uh, we got excitement in the market. And then is it okay? Is this something that was good seasonally? Do we want to continue doing this. Are people going to buy a thousand milligram hot sauce all the time? And we basically we're in the middle on this one. We're like, hey, probably not. You know, like this isn't something we think is a constant staple. But it did go better than expected. Like I thought it would probably take a few months to sell through them all. And so it's like, all right, so maybe it's it's like a, a featured project. We do it more frequently. Like, Hey, let's put out another flavor of a 420. Let's, you know, let's do it two or three times a year, you know? And, and so we kind of gauge that velocity on that. We're always throwing a lot of things at the wall. Cause even with the excuse we do have, it's like, can we update flavors? Yeah. I think it's a combination of the cannabis customer always wanting to try something new and then millennial shopping habits in general, where it's like, okay, take me to a, like it's exploration is part of the excitement of a shopping trip or something that is a completely different mentality for consumers than I think was generations prior had where it's like, okay, can I just get Wonder Bread again? You know, it's the same thing. Also, we're still so early on in the process that the products that, you know, might become mainstream might not even be developed yet. So I love the idea that you guys constantly throwing new categories at the wall to see, you know, what is there because that's how you test like new innovative products. And you kind of push the boundaries from a customer experience. But the, also the nice thing too, is we have this big catalog of things that we've tried that, you know, again, we may not keep in the California market, but when we look at, okay, we're, you know, we're licensed in Arizona, we're licensed in Oklahoma, where we have constant people hitting us up to try to bring the brand to new states, even new countries. And I get to go, hey, well, here's a catalog of things that we've done. And based on your regulations, based on what you think the market works, based on your capabilities and your facilities, if you want to license the brand or build the brand, you can pick from this huge range of things. And so, and we already have the packaging already designed, we've already validated the recipe. And and I think that that's something that people don't think about is, is like that footprint. When I look at what, what can Corova be across the globe is, you know, we can have all these different products that still meet this kind of high potency concept that still kind of work with the brand, but that are differently represented throughout. So it's kind of also a sneaky way to approach uh, having a really effective, you know, strategy for expansion when that time comes. Yeah, you also have metrics to back up how it's sold. So you know, you know, this sold really nicely during this month, and we're going to kind of run out another flavor. And that just provides more value when you're having these conversations, especially with 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 states like Arizona, or maybe even the East Coast states who are newer to markets and, and still learning about consumer experience. Yeah, I think for sure. demographics also probably play a role too, right? Like the East Coast is a different culture than the West Coast. So a product that maybe flopped on the West Coast might have a huge success on the East Coast, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, no, look, I'm just waiting for that, that Corova Yingling collab, you know what I mean? For, for all my uh, Philly heads, you know, where that's, <laughs> I completely agree. Demographics, time of year, all that kind of stuff matters. And so we have a lot of this data, a lot of these things together. Um, it's a lot to manage, but just knowing we kind of have all these things pieced together for the future is, is helpful as well. So let's talk about being vertically integrated and one of the challenges. So most can understand actually how challenging it is to be vertically integrated, but from your position, what's one idea or concept that most wouldn't understand about the challenges? Yeah, well, it's basically, it's running, we run seven businesses, not one. Like that's the biggest challenge, right? Is, is uh, uh, sometimes, you know, when, when I think late at night, I'm like, hey, what would it be like to just do one thing really well? <laughs> you, know? Uh, you know, it would seem much simpler, but then, you know, so you get the, so you're never amazing at anything, right? You're good at many things. Maybe you're amazing at one or two if, if you're lucky, but also you're, you're hedged. We go, you know, the market's changing. These prices are going down. Oh, we can lean more in this direction with the business. It just gives us more fluidity to be able to survive the potential changes of the cannabis industry. And that's, so that helps me sleep at night, you know, <laughs> on the other side of that, knowing that like, all right, guess what? If, if all of a sudden everyone's really integrated, we can lean on our own stores. All of a sudden, if, you know, uh, if, 
cultivation prices drop to X amount of level or, or they, or they rise to X amount of level, we have our own, we have control of it. So, uh, but yeah, the hardest part is just running all those different businesses effectively is, uh, is never going to be, you're never going to be as proficient at that as you are going to be running one or two things extremely well. Really well said. Kellen, you want to expand on that from an operational excellence standpoint, it's, it's got to be incredibly challenging to kind of do what Orm's describing. Yeah, I mean, it's real, what you're running, like an agricultural focused business, uh, a chemical refinery slash pharmaceutical regulated business, as well as like a retail CPG business, all kind yeah. of wrapped into one. Distribution and, and trucking, you oh, know, yeah, is totally what you add that into it. Like, yeah, it's, all, it's right. a whole set of things. And then like in certain states, right, on the West Coast, like in Washington, you're not allowed to be vertically integrated. So like this sweet business model that you guys have worked so diligently in California, you can't just pop that right into Washington with the same results. You have to play almost a different game. So like, what, what has that been like from an expansion standpoint? Well, we already have this. So in Oregon, for instance, we have, yep. we have brands, we have farms, we have distribution, but we don't own any stores. And we okay. just kind of looked at the way that the retail model works there. And, and you know, potentially in the future, it might all work together, but we, you know, it's kind of like the presence we have. But what's nice is we can kind of do those versions of cutouts. Our business doesn't have to be vertically integrated. In California, because it's so brutally competitive, yes. like mar- margins are super low, prices are low. There's a thousand brands. There's all these stores like we need every penny we can squeeze out of anything you know and so uh this that's a great way to ensure we do that to survive and to succeed in california and the reason you want to succeed in california is it's the size of all the other markets combined essentially at this point in uh inside the u.s and so it doesn't matter as long as we are a we're surviving there we're building what we can there we know a we're well equipped to in any market where everything else is easier by, by comparison so we're ready for that and then we can we know we have a certain level of expertise we've had to work through hyper competitively inside each of these that when we go and say we're going to do retail in louisiana or whatever that is in, in x amount of time we're able to apply our, our expertise from it but yeah a lot of this just comes from being being fluid and just knowing like I'm not waking up today and I'm dead set and this is exactly how we have to operate. If the conditions change, we need to move with the flow. So important. So let's talk about some of those roll-ups your team has done. Obviously, you've been pretty uh, loud with some of your roll-ups. Can you share some information on some of the most recent ones and what's on the pipeline? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I can't talk as much about the pipeline, obviously, but I think we, we, we are like looking to, to expand. Uh, yeah, I love it. Uh, so we we acquired a big retail, um, a single store with a bunch of pending stores uh, called Peoples. And so Peoples is a kind of one of the most prominent uh, dispensary locations in, in California, period. Uh, just big freeway frontage. You know, Peoples Dispensary in Orange County and this dispensary called Airfield um, in San Jose that just got acquired by our friends over at Gold Flora were like two of the like, really prominent you know, everyone, everyone knows them. People see them if you're, if you're in that region. So we acquired that, uh, and which was kind of a big, a big deal for us to have, instead of just having a couple small shops to have a really marquee retail store that we can, uh, that we can be prominent in. And so, um, and then to be able to open those additional licenses underneath it, uh, we acquired a delivery service in, in Sacramento, you know, mainly because the Sacramento market is a, there is no huge presence from the, from the really large delivery services out there. And we thought it was an interesting opportunity to be able to kind of, uh, get a foothold in, in that market where it's a little bit more complicated to get retail. None of the big players have, have delivery uh, yet that's, that's really taken off. Um, and, you know, and right now we're, you know, we're looking at a, a kind of a wide range of things. You know, we're looking at what brands fit in our portfolio and really help us work through things. What, what retail helps us get new locations to help, you know, make sure we kind of have reach all the way across California. We're like kind of always evaluating new opportunities. You know, this is an expansion driven industry. Um, and I think that's kind of how we're looking is what brands and categories, you know, really fit with our portfolio and what retail really fits with, with our, our footprint. Um, but now, you know, we have, we have five existing dispensaries. We have the delivery service. Uh, we have the sticks brand, the cabana brand, the, the Corova brand, you know, distro hubs in Southern California, Northern California, and Oregon, two, uh, 
arid to um, indoor grows in Oakland uh, to greenhouse slash outdoor grows in Southern Oregon. It's a pretty big footprint. And so we're just kind of continuing to, to, to add to that, but, you know, rolling all that up. Um, yeah, a, a lot of those challenges were not just logistical, but, you know, cultural as well. How do you make people feel like they're part of a team? How do you feel like you're all fighting for the same thing? You know, those are things that we have not, you know, finished and gotten to the point where we want to get them, but we're working towards it every day. What is the, the, what was the politics like in terms of acquiring that people's uh, dispensary? I mean, how big was that? Talk about how competitive California is. I mean, that's a, those two people's dispensaries are marquee locations. I mean, they're beautiful stores. The, the two story one in Santa Ana is phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, and so I guess the politics is, uh, it's more of, you know, we'd already had a store in Santa Ana, you know, and so we were already kind of competing inside the the mix there, but getting that was just a, uh, I don't know if there was, there was politics around it, but it definitely was a, it was eye-opening for a lot of people of kind of at the scale we were trying to function at and the, and the ambition we have going forward. Um, because, you know, we have been a, a, uh, like a mid-sized private group prior to this kind of merger. We, we merged with Terratech. They were a, uh, you know, a bit of a languishing, kind of, uh, you know, company on, on the markets and you kind of combine a, uh, ambitious kind of tenacious, you know, um, medium sized group with, with that. And then immediately start kind of doing big name acquisitions, I think was a, what was eye opening. And so there's a lot of just kind of people saying, all right, well, now we're kind of, we're on the map, we're on the radar people for what we're trying to do. And we're just kind of continuing that trend with how we're going to execute throughout that. When you're looking to buy the people's dispensary or the distribu- distribution model, how, how does your team like look at it from an internal standpoint and knowing like this is where the capital is best going versus let's saying, hey, we need to hold this capital for future. Is there like internal numbers you look at from a forecasting standpoint or you look at more about what it's currently doing now and how you can optimize it? Yeah, I think there's a couple variables on that. There's obviously the business variable of like, okay, how much cash does this generate versus how much cash we're outlining? How does this change the, the overall figures we have? What, what is the upside potential that we could add to it? You know, how much can we kind of expand from there? And then, you know, what is it, is it kind of playing into a category that we feel has a greater macro level value if we're, you know, looking to take brands into different states in the future or if we're looking to, you know, cr- create a, a, a narrative that helps support, you know, what, uh, what we're trying to do as a group. So there's really a lot of factors. It kind of has to be looked at one by one. But a lot of what we're looking at currently is like, does it have the, the scale where our kind of machine can, can really help build it, right? Where we have enough people, enough brands, enough things that we're already doing that uh, if we rolled into that system, it can run significantly better. And I think that's a big part of how we look at what we evaluate. Let's talk about the distribution. If I'm a brand and I'm interested in partnering with your team, how does that work? Do I have to hit certain minimum order quantities? We get people that hit us up all the time that ask about these type of partnerships, and I'm sure you do as well. How does that work? And so I've, I basically, uh, I've stopped referring to, you know, our, that operation as distribution. And now I kind of refer to it more as an accelerator because, you know, we're, we're just, yes, we have trucks on the road, but really what we're doing is a combination of, you know, since we own all our own stores, if you're a brand that comes into our distribution, you know, I like to basically say those stores are now essentially your stores. You want to try specific promotions. You want to try new styles of merchandising. You want to evaluate products before you bring them to the market. Like this is your, this is your playground to work with us, to work with the team, to feel like we're kind of one place to do that. Um, and you know, and then we have kind of these different piecemeal options of whether we help you just with the trucking, whether we help you with trucking and sales to kind of work through that. And so where our sweet spot is really, if you've hit a certain level of brand growth, you know, uh, like low six figures where you have your product market fit, you know, people are interested and excited by your brand, but you have a hard time taking it to that next level because that's, you know, a lot of people with a good concept and decent execution can get to there, but then taking it to half a million or a million dollars a month in, in sales, you really need uh, all the tactics of how to succeed in retail. You need the network of all the people to support it. You need that kind of trial and error basis of what we've built. And you need people who will like tell you straight up, be like, 
yeah, hey, this, this packaging needs to change, you know, or like, this is outdated, this pricing doesn't work. And so if we find people that have achieved that level, that are kind of humble enough that they know that they want to need to work with people, you know, uh, cooperatively to get to the next stage, that's really perfect for us. But we also only do things that they complement our portfolio. I don't want to have four cartridge brands on our menu that our sales reps are trying to sell. That doesn't make sense. I want to have kind of one thing, at least by price point, by category. And so you'll kind of see when you look at our distro lineup is like, we have a really prominent sun-grown brand. We have really, we have our existing outdoor brand. We have a, a drinks company in the category. You know, we, uh, there's a, you know, we have a, a, like a cartridge brand that's kind of more focused on all natural. We have a sustainable flower brand. Like they're kind of things that can stand on their own in their own niche and Rather than trying to build a you know fifty company distribution, I'd rather have like the right ten that are expanding in the right way that fit in the right categories. When we go to a shop, we can say, "Hey, here's here's like a best in class offering that can fill up a large amount of your shelves." You know, if you want to lean in with us, does any of those data points help kind of lead back into what you said originally about the hot sauce and, and making those inferences for short term decisions for let's say new product categories? Yeah, well, I think all of this is just with a more open conversation with more intelligent people seeing things in different ways in the market is is great. And just the fact we can all have a a conversation between you know the owners of our distro brands, the retail partners that we're really deep with, our own retail stores, and kind of validate things is is huge. And I think it's kind of a, a significant advantage for kind of everyone working working together. A large majority of our listeners are East Coast based. What is one concept or statistic about the California market that would surprise or shock them? Uh, I think they'd be surprised when they see the weed versus the weed they get on the East Coast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Y'all can't keep smoking that sticks and dirt forever. You know what I mean? Uh, you gotta, you gotta ask for more from your for your local MSO. Some of us um, get good stuff. <laughs> oh, hey, my guy. Uh, uh, no, but I, yeah, I think that's the that's the biggest thing I've. Uh, you know, I think we see is people will be shocked at how refined the product experiences are. Like you go to our dispensary downstairs from where I'm sitting right now. And if you, know, you want stuff that hits you normally, do you want fast acting? We have that in kind of within every variety, you know, eight different types of carts, you know, like that are, you know, not just by flavor, but Hey, it's live resin. It's full spectrum. It's, you know, like there's a, you know, it's just pure HTE. There's just so much variety, so many experiences, so many cannabinoids, you know, CBD, CBG, you know, THCV, like it just, it is the Delta eight stuff, the variety and the efficacy and then how refined those products are. So like someone threw a label on it, they're fully, you know, merchandised, et cetera, is uh, I think is, is shocking for people that have only experienced kind of what happens inside these, these dispensaries and the kind of, uh, for lack of a better term, like less developed markets. And, you know, just, it is, it's a full CPG. It's walking into a Whole Foods, you know, uh, and, oh. and it's all taken super seriously. The product quality is all extremely high. And I think for people that haven't experienced that, and, and it's similar in Washington and, and Oregon and to a lesser extent, Arizona uh, and, and Nevada. But like, if you haven't experienced that, it's extremely eye-opening. And then people kind of walk in and be like, oh, I didn't realize it was like this. You know, like there's there's legitimate brands. There's hundreds of options. There's all these things I haven't heard of before. It's a uh, it's pretty eye-opening. It's almost overwhelming. Oh, for sure. And that is definitely a problem with the customer too. We have to always remind, especially when we talk to staff, like we have to dumb it down. Like they don't, people do not understand these concepts. You know, they're not, it, and it takes a ton of research. It's like, how can we enable them on that, on that journey is a, uh, always a conversation point. I think what you said, it, 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 it surprises people. I remember Kellen took me to one. I was going to tell this story. And I walked <laughs> in and I was just kind of blown away. I was like, there is a million products here. I'd walked into, I was expecting to have like six products very like low experience. And I walked in, there's a million products. And I was like, almost like dumbed down. I was like, I don't even know what to do. And Kellen's like, what do you want? You want edible? Go into that corner and like pause. And I think for a lot of people here in the East Coast, I've never been to a dispensary. They're going to kind of be surprised by the experience because they are kind of conceiving these initial thought processes because for most of them, the only experience they've had with cannabis is someone dropping it off in a car. Yeah. Yeah. It's completely controlling that experience is so important for brands right now, not only from an educational standpoint, but from a macro perspective as well. 
You know what I mean? And having the ability to, because the bud tender consumer interaction is absolutely paramount to creating that successful brand awareness and brand loyalty. So like, what do you guys do to educate your bud tenders? Do you guys have like a specific system that you implement at new dispensaries that you move into? Like, how does that whole process yeah, we, we do all kinds of stuff. It's a constant working flow. So we have, we have two really great trainers to work across our dispensaries who kind of, that's all they do. And so there's, there's onboarding training and there's ongoing training, but it's even more challenging than one might think of too. Cause you know, we have people that walk into the dispensaries every day and we'll, and we'll talk to their bud tender who is in, in, we have bud tenders from all walks of life, but in most cases they're early to mid twenties, Maybe they did a food service job before this, you know, maybe they were at a grocery store or at Disney World or one of those kind of things. And they're kind of moving into the cannabis industry if they have job experience prior. And they're saying, hey, I have, you know, I have osteoporosis. Like, how can you help me? <laughs> you know, and, uh, and so, and so for that person who's, you know, like, uh, that, that, that's, a, that's a heavy question, you know, yes. and so we kind of have to, uh, I will give like 100% credit to the team that's kind of worked through that, that training. That's a big part of what some of what we got that was intangible from the people's acquisition is because they see, uh, you know, people sees more people a day than all the previous dispensaries we had combined. Wow. And there's, it's also a very different demographic. It's like an older demographic. So they've really had to work through how do we have this consultative experience that, that works for that crowd and works at scale. And so we took a lot of their training methodology and applied it you know, especially for onboarding new uh, bud tenders through the rest of our organization to kind of work through, okay, we're, we're treating symptoms. We're not treating, you know, an actual thing. And even treating is a complicated word. So we're helping relieve symptoms. We're, we're giving people the choices. We're helping them track those choices, you know, and we're educating them about all the different parts of the plant. Um, but then a lot of it comes down, there's so many new products, so many new things. And so we do a lot of R&D sessions, you know, a lot of product that actually gets given out to the bud tenders. And then we have, uh, we have Slack channels in our company where bud tenders basically review products for each other and the other people can kind of can look at. And it's, really interesting what those are involved into because like I go in some of these and it's like essentially poetry that's like being written inside of them. <laughs> you know, like cute. people are really going in on these descriptions and for some people that can actually eloquently write and things like that, it's a great opportunity for them to be able to share that knowledge. And for some people that aren't that way, but who can consume it and kind of take it in and be like, Oh, you know, this guy whose opinion I trust, like we've got Jared who really writes eloquent stuff inside of these. Uh, if, one of our other bartenders can go, oh, I really trust his opinion because I know the things that he likes. I mean, he puts a lot of work into his reviews. I'm going to recommend this based on what he said. Like that's, it's, it's really getting that kind of peer process in there because when brands come into train, they care about selling points and intangibles of their history and things the customer doesn't want to know. They want to know, is this going to help me sleep? Why is this going to help me sleep differently than how that helps me sleep? You know, what it's like, there's a, there's these things that like the brands just want to you know, get their history across. And so we try to take a lot of that into our own hands and then give a lot of power to the bartenders to work within, you know, their, their own groups. But yeah, it's constantly a conversation of how do we improve on that? Uh, how do we make sure we're offering like a modern experience? And a, a lot of what we're focused on this year is translating a lot of that to the web and uh, translating a lot of it into recommendations. And how do we kind of give people some tools for their journey above and beyond talking to someone? Is it like a downloadable PDF where you can fill out stuff about products and, and how you felt and what terpenes they have? Like, how do we kind of make it more of a overall experience? Because that's been totally it hasn't been unlocked, right? There's no, when I order on a delivery app, I don't get to say, oh, do I like this product or not like this product? And it recommends me things when I like a couple of products based on the terpene profile. Like we're not there yet, but that is coming. And uh, it's something we're kind of actively thinking about as we kind of try to build a modern cannabis experience. A delivery service would probably be really good to uh, understand that a little deeper, eh? 
Uh, yeah, just you know, <laughs> try, 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 trying to understand every kind of piece of the market and see what we can build there. And look, as you guys, I think you guys had Colin on prior, right? So he's really focused on how do we build a like uh, a technology stack that really enables the business. Because right now, most of the cannabis industry relies on uh, people who've built these little software pieces that are all like okay, but they don't. They're not really. They're incentivized to improve their software. They're not incentivized to have a great customer experience. And us being able to build a lot of our own tech internally, and we're developing almost everything that we do now ourselves, is uh, gives us an opportunity to look at that from the customer experience standpoint not from the I'm trying to sell you software standpoint. Is the sharing of the information internally and then kind of pushing it out for the outbound side kind of the origin of the idea of the buyer's corner that you started really releasing? Uh, yeah, that, that's more of just, a, you know, I'm, I'm trying to put content out there. I feel like uh, that, you know, people seem interested in those products. And I'm really interested in them and we're kind of, we're looking at them. You know, we analyze, we get tons of stuff sent to us. Obviously, everyone's always trying to sell you something. And I just like to kind of highlight what those are. But I was trying to think of, okay, everyone's, you know, uh, got their videos talking about their brands and their companies and everything. That's kind of what we're seeing in the space, how we analyze and look at products, what's different. And, and then appeal to an audience outside of cannabis. Like I understand that not everyone that is either going to invest in our company or that is going to follow, you know, myself or Colin on Twitter or anything like that is necessarily a cannabis consumer. But are they interested in packaging? Are they interested in entrepreneurship? And can some of the things we can talk about from that, like, hey, this is, you know, this is how this packaging differentiates itself on the shelf. That it's interesting whether you're looking at cannabis or not. Uh, I'm trying to just kind of have content out there that is more universally appealing to to, kind of to, to CPG. Uh, and yeah, we just see so much interesting stuff. You know, I, I think you, you commented on it earlier. Like, you know, I got last night, I got these little like cordials, you know, these little cannabis cordials. And it's just like, I've never seen anything like it. I'll make like, a video about it. People are interested. They have questions. And uh, it's kind of, it's just an exciting thing to share because product discovery is such a big part of the cannabis industry. Yeah, I think it's really well done and it's informative, it's educational and, and it shows value. And I love the fact that it's not your brand, right? You're bringing value and education to the space and you're not kind of heavy pushing your own products to the space, which could be easily done, right? But you're, you're, you're not doing that. And the cordial products were really interesting. I had seen that and I was like, is that a tincture? Is that a beverage? Which I didn't think you were going to respond with. Is that a five hour energy replication? I was like, yeah. what is this? Yeah, it's just like, I mean, there's so many, and I kind of answered the funny part too. It's like, I'm not really sure. I was like, I mean, asked the question, I'm like, I think that's a beverage because of the, because of the potency, you know, it's just like, it's a, yeah, it's interesting to see kind of where, where things are going. And then also see the feedback we get from people when we kind of, when we put that stuff out there, you know, um, you know, are they commenting on the packaging or are they commenting on the product? Do they want to try that, you know, and, and, and what does it look like? And so I'm interested. I've got a couple of those recorded and we record a few more and just kind of, you know, see, see what, see what catches on. Like that's not kind of this new world we're living in where, you know, whether it's investor relations or brand awareness, it's no longer like, what do we put out in the brand's Instagram account? Or what do we put out in the press release? It's like, how do we engage in a dialogue? And that's what Colin and I have been trying to do on Spaces uh, kind of kind of every Friday. So I'm trying to do some of these videos, but it's never going to be hugely successful up front. I'm not expecting to have 100,000 views when we start off, but it's like, okay, is this getting somewhere in the conversation? Are we putting enough of them out, out for people to care? And I want to make sure... You know, I also feel like it's a great way to get feedback too, you know, especially from other markets, what excites people or, or what gets noticed, uh, because oftentimes it's different than what I might think. Yeah, and I got to hand it to you guys. You're out there in the public. You're building directly with the consumers, and you're you're taking the, the feedback from them. And I think a lot of MSOs and a lot of these other big players can learn a lot from what you and Colin are doing. And I definitely tip my hat to you guys because you're doing it the right way. Uh, I appreciate it. Twitter's been great because I, I, I have probably touched 100 investors in my DMs, you know, uh, over the last couple of months. I've toured easily 15 to 20 through our stores because I'll happily be like, hey, you're in Orange County or you're, you're coming to LA. I'm there. Like, I, I prefer that you do it with me. I want to know what you think, you know, especially because we have... 
so many people have a history and they all invest for different reasons. And like that level of availability, both for the investors and, and for me, like I'm sure they're excited and stoked to be able to kind of have that dialogue directly. And also like, I genuinely want to know what, what they're thinking and not just be like, okay, some graph presented to me by like an IR firm is telling me what, what like the sentiment is. Like, let me know what, what people think in the streets. And, you know, uh, I was never like big on Twitter kind of before this, right? And, uh, but I think that just having that availability is such a massive advantage and uh, like we should leverage that community as much as we can. Yeah, hundred percent. So let's talk about legal versus legacy trends. Does your team kind of analyze, let's say, more of the the legacy trends to figure out, you know, what can be kind of brought to the legal market? You know, not really. You know, it's funny. Uh, we're competing, especially I'm in our downtown LA dispensary, and there's like a trap shop right there, <laughs> you know, like across the street. Uh, and so they, you know, we we are aware of the uh, legal market and kind of what's happening there, but I think they are. Uh, you know, they're focused on doing things that, that you can't inside of this, like really high potency caps and things like that. But then when you actually, you know, try the product or test the products, a lot of it's just kind of like lies that are on the packaging, you know? And, uh, and so I think we're, we're more concerned about the legal trends and what we can do within our constraints and kind of looking at what the black market's doing. Whereas I think that might've been different, you know, two or three years ago, because it's like, okay, what's selling there? Um, I do think that, you know, strain preferences is kind of universal across both. But, but what we're seeing, and especially from this dispensary we have here, is a lot of our customers here are younger. They're kind of more Gen Z focused, which I can't say about any of our other dispensaries. And, and I think that they're a generation that isn't okay with that. Like if you've been in California smoking weed for a long enough time, you've been buying out of a, out of a trap shop. And especially if you've been, you know, like they've been open for 10, 15 years. And so you're, you're used to that experience. It's not novel to you, but for Gen Z, they haven't. And they're, you know, and so they, their ability to go in and, and have a different customer experience and, and go to kind of like the legal campus is, is an interesting opportunity. So you kind of get this like Gen Z and older demo that would never kind of approach that middle ground. And then you get like the millennial Gen X who like, it's a 50-50, you know, and uh, it's, it's really interesting to think through. But I think the, the trends are being set in the legal market in California. Do you think that's going to take a full generation to get rid of the legacy market? I don't know if the legacy market will ever go away. Uh, and I don't think it needs to either. I, you know, it is, look, is competing with it uh, annoying? Sure. Is it... Uh, is it destroying our business? Like not necessarily. And I think it is a, it's, it's something that like you can't fight. People are, have been, have been selling drugs person to person, you know, and, uh, and, and cannabis for forever and store in stores in California. It's a part of the culture. And look, we get a lot of, a lot of our best employees have come from, from that angle. A lot of customers have, you know, uh, kind of may start there and then, and then graduate into the legal market. And I think it's just a, it's something that, you know, it's not like some massive crackdown changes, changes anything. It will always continue. It's kind of how it is. Yeah. The main thing is, are, are people, do people have access to safe cannabis? It's giving them the experience that they, that they want, you know, and, uh, and how can we kind of continue building, you know, awareness of the efficacy of, of, of cannabis overall, you know, going forward. I think some people are just comfortable in their routine and their habit, right? And there's this trust factor that they've had. They bought, they bought cannabis from the same guy for 25 years. Why change now? And I think yeah. it's just hard for some people to change in those areas. Well, and it's not, that's not necessarily wrong. And the price is the price might be lower, you know, and there's, so there's just a lot of kind of eventually goes there, but like but the market is so huge. It's big enough for, for everybody essentially. And, uh, and with the, everyone has this huge desire for just massive immediate growth and wealth creation in the cannabis industry that is unrealistic. You know, it's a, uh, and I think that there is the opportunity is huge in a decade. Is this, is this market have a hundred X size of what it is now, like a completely a hundred percent. And, uh, but like that isn't going to happen in six months. And if we look at it that way, like the opportunity is there to, to build those generational brands, build these real companies, have that infrastructure. But that doesn't mean that we have to like stamp out every single, you know, someone who's, who's growing weed and then selling it to their friend. Like that's okay. It can all like live harmoniously. Uh, the thing that we, biggest thing we care about is, is it safe? Is it controllable? Is, do people have experiences they can feel good about? Cause what does hurt is if someone goes there, buys the edible, it's too much, you know, or from, from a friend or from someone else and has 
has a bad experience that makes them never want to try it again versus having a experience that could have been perfect for you know th- their first time. I think that stuff really does matter. I agree with that. That's really well said. Since you've been in the cannabinoid industry, what is the biggest misconception? You know, I think the biggest misconception is that people are just doing it to get high and have fun. Whereas we see it's, it's so much more tactical than that. Like people come in, you know, uh, let's say half our customers come in, let's have a good time. The other half are coming in to solve a problem. They're saying, I'm sore. I can't sleep. I have this pain, whatever that is. And they're solving it with cannabis. And uh, whether that's a gummy or a tincture or a flower product. And it is, it is so much more that. And it is so much like all walks of life. Like our spot dispensary in, in Santa Ana where our office is above, like look, you get people in scrubs, construction workers, old folks, young folks, groups, it is every single walk of life. It's not just like a bunch of people that are going out to party and they're all trying to like, you know, uh, a good chunk of them are, are trying to solve like real issues in their life. And so I think that, you know, a lot of people kind of just assume it's essentially akin to alcohol, you know, um, when really it's a, it's a, it's a tool, it spans wellness, you know, it spans like kind of medical relief and it spans recreation. And uh, I think that's something that, that you know, the, the mass public has yet to understand. It's a really powerful concept. Before we do predictions, we ask all of our guests, if you could sum up your experience in a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass onto the next generation, what would it be? No, I would say to be, uh, to prepare, to prepare yourself or your organization for, uh, for change, right? The biggest thing you can do to be successful is that it's innately, uh, humans have an innate problem with change. It's hard. And if you can build a culture of people and you can build your own personal kind of mental model or approach where change is easy, change is natural, change is a part of your day. So you can make decisions on the fly and you can move things over and you're not stuck in your ways. Then you guys have such a higher chance of succeeding in something that's like an emerging market or complex. And our entire world is becoming an emerging market and complex. Everything is changing around us. And so if you can you make that mental shift, both yourself or your team or your company or your group of friends, you're going to be really well equipped for what's coming in the future. I like that answer. Yeah, me too. All right, prediction time. Lauren, what can wide-eyed East Coaster East Coast operators duplicate from West Coast markets to position themselves for potential success? Um, I would say just really focusing on really focusing on flour and strains and what uh, can be done like consistently at high quality and like raising those quality standards. Because I think there's a uh, just because in virtue of being in the light in a market where there's only a handful of people competing and the customers are already coming, there's an opportunity to kind of rest on your quality standards or on your laurels. And so if you're a kind of company working there, it's like, no, I think you need to be constantly working on improving that quality, whether you're competing or have to or not, because you're the standard isn't what's around you right now. The standard is okay, when you can ship anything from California anywhere in the world or from some of these small boutique growers in Canada, they're amazing anywhere in the world. Are you able to compete with that? And I think that uh, that's a, a key thing to kind of think about. And then, you know, and for customers, I think I'd just be prepared for so many more cannabis experiences than you could ever have imagined that are going to do so many good things for you and just be really excited about what that future is. Kellen? Uh, I think the East Coast... It's a good question. I was going to take orange. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Honestly, I think organic growth is probably something that needs to be focused on more than anything else from an East Coast perspective. I think a lot of companies on the West Coast that are no longer in business anymore got in trouble from kind of stars in their eyes and dollar signs and thinking that they were going to come in and just have this massive opportunity to build a, a tech company, if you will, and have it explode in terms of the, the market size and everything. So I think that by focusing on like a small organic kind of facility and an operation that'll inherently lead to a higher quality product. And I think that's the only way you compete in um, 
these new markets now, especially with existing MSOs having a presence there. I mean, it's not going to be like when Oregon's market came online five years ago and there was high high quality stuff from a legacy grower and there was stuff from a guy who had never grown before sitting on the shelves next to each other. I don't think that's going to be the case in most East Coast dispensaries. I think that it's going to be a much higher competitive market just because you have companies with so much more experience entering those marketplaces. Brian, what do you think? I think flexibility and constantly demoing new product categories like Warren described, I think it's so important. So to have that catalog and be able to show, you know, other other operations, you know, this is what we've done, here's the pricing, here's the packaging, as well as giving consumers another reason to come back into the store. I think, you know, what we've seen with deliveries that people like the easy convenience method, but what they can't get in those experiences, at least as easily replicated, is that one-on-one experience with the bud tender. And I think, you know, the ability to have new products continually hit the shelves is really exciting. And I think gives consumers another reason to add it into the routine so it can be part of their habit stack. So I love that concept. And I think that's a a major takeaway. And I think if you're operating here in East Coast State, it's probably something you should probably look to do sooner rather than later. So, Oren, for our listeners that want to get in touch, they want to learn more, where can they find you? So, I'm at Oren Meets World on, on Twitter. That's the easiest way to do it. Uh, same on Instagram, but not as much on there. Uh, just Oren you know, on, on LinkedIn. Uh, but yeah, Twitter is definitely the best way. And uh, yeah, and like, look, I, I love talking to people. I love, I love ideas, cool packaging, cool products, cool feedback. S- send them all to me. And uh, yeah, let's, let's chat. Yeah, and we'll tag up all of Unrivaled Brands in the, the show notes. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Infused, a cannabis talk show, is a -a one-of-a-kind look inside the cannabis industry. Meet the amazing people who make cannabis businesses bloom as they join host Nick with Francesca and Mike for creative cannabis conversations. Get an honest look at the business of cannabis, including trends, best and worst practices, products, education, and advocacy. Whether you're kind of curious or running a cannabis, Infused has kind of conversations that count. Infused is available on YouTube and is now streaming as part of the PodConnects network.